Please join me in praying. Dear Lord, once again, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessing it is to have these scriptures and the account of your salvation. Lord, let it bring life to us. Open our hearts that we might receive you. And I pray as the preacher this morning for your help, that I would be clear and true. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well done, Bruce. We gave you the hardest reading in the Bible. But as a side note, Luke, who wrote that, wanted to nail this thing down to a specific date, time, and place in history. And naming all those rulers does that exactly. This really happened in real history. So Advent, the word comes from Latin Adventus, which means coming or arrival. This is a season that's a penitential season, meaning we're supposed to take stock of our lives and ask the question of, am I prepared to meet the Lord? He's coming. He's come once in real history, and he's coming again at an undisclosed time. Are you receptive of that? Are you ready to meet with him? Or as they sometimes say in the movies, are you ready to meet your maker? I mean, honestly, it's a good question. Am I ready to meet him? Good question to reflect on. Now, we're in a series right now called Living with Expectation. And last week, we looked at the expectation of hope. And the point was that because of what Jesus has done as our Savior, when that day comes, when we get to meet our Maker, we can actually lift up our heads and straighten up our backs and be excited about it. Because it's not going to be a shameful moment for those who are in Christ. It's going to be exciting and we're going to be blessed by it. So we can lift up our heads. The shame is gone because Jesus has taken it away. Now today, we're going to look at the concept of salvation, expectation of salvation. And our text is Luke chapter 3. So if you'll find a pew Bible and go there, that would be helpful. I'm guessing it's somewhere around 880. I didn't write the page number down, but last week we were later in Luke, so it's a little earlier than that, somewhere around there. While you're getting there, let me set it up. This is John the Baptist part 1, and next week will be John the Baptist part 2. So it's a pretty big section there in Luke chapter 3. And I'm only going gonna, gonna to try and constrain myself to the first six verses, and then next week we'll, we'll look into that a little bit further. But what struck me as I was studying this is verse 6. Luke 3 verse 6 says, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now that all flesh is referring to all nations, Gentiles, Jews, everybody. Salvation is for all people. But the word salvation is what jumped out at me. What is salvation? What, what are we talking about here? It's not uncommon to see, um, let's say, on a graffitied wall, the words, Jesus saves, painted, or a bumper sticker that will actually say, Jesus saves. I actually like that message because it's simple. Two words, and it's incredibly provocative. It asks important questions. I saw a bumper sticker, though, that confused me not long ago, and it, it said, Jesus saves, and it had a Jesus figure in hockey goalie equipment standing in front of a goal. I I guess they're trying to be ironic or something. So that only adds more confusion to what salvation is. I don't think it's saving a slap shot from going into the net. But what is it actually? What is salvation? That word occurs throughout the scriptures quite a bit. In fact, in the prior chapter, we have what in Latin, again, another Latin word for you, the nunc diminis, which is a very famous and helpful liturgical section where the prophet Simeon is Uh, takes the baby Jesus in the temple, and he starts out by saying, now you are dismissing, nunc diminis in Latin. It's just a cool way to say it now, but they used to take the first couple of words in the Latin, and that's how they would name that section. So Simeon sees this barely one-month-old baby Jesus, and he'd been in the temple praying, and he takes the baby in his arms, and he looks up and he says, nunc diminis, but he wasn't speaking Latin. He says, now, Lord, you are dismissing your servant in peace, 
for my eyes have seen your salvation. There's that word again. So what is salvation? At its simplest, boiled it down, reduction, it is Jesus. Salvation is Jesus. But it's a little bit more than that. What specifically? And it raises questions like, salvation is Jesus, but salvation from what or from whom? And another question is, why do we have to be told that salvation comes? All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Why do we have to be told that? And in particular to John the Baptist, why is it that all four Gospels find it important to name him in their Gospel account? I mean, Luke has other cool stuff like the parable of the Good Samaritan or the parable of the prodigal son. Those aren't in Matthew, Mark, and John. But the John the Baptist account is. It's obviously very important. And he's coming and telling us about salvation. So I want to I wanna think about what salvation is saving us from and also what it's saving us to. And what it's saving us from, again, on a simple level, is it's a turning away from sin and turning to Christ. So John's message, as was Jesus's, was repent and believe the good news. So repent means a change of mind. So you're going in one direction, you change your mind, and you turn and go the other direction. So salvation is, I'm going on a path, now I turn, and Christ is my path. He's my Savior and Lord. So it's being saved from sin and the effects of sin. That's what it's saved from. What are we saved to, though? Um, in the prayers of the people that Dan writes each week and does an excellent job with, in Advent, I have heard them already for the nine o'clock service, we're going to mention that phrase from the Christmas song, far as the curse is found. You know, joy to the world, far as the curse is found. What we're saved to is a participation in the salvation of everything. So it's not just saving individuals. It's saving 100% of individuals and 100% of the universe. This is God's work. Far as the curse is found, he wants to overturn everything. He doesn't want just your you know, eternal state. He wants your now. He wants you to trust him not, not with your death, but also with your life. He's trying to bring all things under his rule and reign. The king is coming. He is the king of all kings. And so what, what is salvation? Well, it's a point in time but it's also a process. So you can say a sinner's prayer. You can repent of your sin. You can turn to Jesus and trust in him as your savior and be saved. And that's legitimate to say, I got saved. And a lot of times people can note the time, place, date exactly when it happened. Others can't. But even the ones that can name that are still in a process of being saved where their entire person is coming under the lordship of Jesus, not just their eternal state. And so the question is, How's your, how's, how's, your, how's your person? Are you excited about Jesus coming? What's the pathway like? Make straight the path for this coming king. Or is your life a windy road and it's full of you know, valleys and pits and has hills and obstacles in the way? How's that coming along? And when I hear about salvation, I want to ask the question, do I want to be saved? You know, John chapter 1 says that Jesus came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. But to those who did receive them, he gave, he received him, he gave the right to become children of God. So his own people rejected him. They didn't want him to be their savior. They rejected him when he, when he came. Do I want to be saved? Why might someone not want to be saved? Well, I think that, I'm going to give you three reasons, but I think a top reason is pride. Because if I acknowledge Jesus as the savior, my savior, I'm acknowledging something about myself as well that I need to be saved. 
And that's a shot to the human pride. We would much rather be worthy in some way. We would much rather have earned it to feel like, I don't really have hills and valleys in my life. I've got a pretty much a straight, straight as an arrow life. I mean, the path, pathway for the king, straight in here. I'm, I'm doing well. Except I'm not, if you look at the, the Bible. And there's some passages in Scripture that are really interesting. Um, Revelation 22:12 is one of those. It's like the very last page of the Bible. And in my Bible, I've got the words of Christ in red letters in here. And so that's usually in the Gospels. It's always interesting to me when I'm outside of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I find red letters. So I turn to the last page of the Bible, and I come to Revelation 22:12, and in red letters it says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So he's speaking here of his sovereignty, and he's saying, I am coming. I'm coming back, and I'm bringing with me recompense, my recompense. That word can mean to pay for. It can also mean to give as compensation, either for service rendered or for some damage done. And so those people that think my life is on a straight line, I'm doing really well, I'm a basically good person, the thought of a holy God coming and bringing recompense to give what is actually deserved. Do you want what is deserved? Because that's a frightening thought if you look at who we're talking about here. I don't want what's deserved. I want mercy and grace. I don't want justice. The spiritually prideful person is looking at the wrong thing, maybe comparing his or her life to someone else, as opposed to looking at this holy God and saying, what do I actually deserve in light of his goodness? But spiritual pride being what it is keeps people from receiving him as savior. And then you get strong words. So Jesus and others and John the Baptist and the rest of this passage had some really strong words to say to the spiritually pride, prideful, the arrogant, because it was a, it was a major block keeping them from receiving what they really needed. So he came out like Jesus in his woes said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He was attacking the religiously proud person and saying, tear that down. You need a savior. Or John the Baptist goes a little further, and it says in verse 7, he said, therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Greet some people when they come over for Christmas evening. Try and use that. Hey, welcome, brood of vipers. That's a bunch of snakes. He called them snakes. Those are strong words. And they were the religious leaders. And he was saying, why are you coming? What do you need? Are you looking for a savior? Are you repenting? Who warned you of the, to flee the coming wrath? Good question. But that's verse 7. We're going to look at that next week. So I'm, I'm trying to stay in 1 through 6. So let me back up. I got excited there. <laughs> but those are not kind words. They're strong words to the religious, religiously prideful, to the so-called sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. When they came, Jesus, with open arms, welcomed them in and invited them to a new kind of life. It was the ones who said, I don't need a Savior that he had hard words for. But it's not just the spiritually proud. It's those who are self-satisfied. In other words, they're accepting of this life. They go, life's not perfect, but it's pretty good. I'm living a pretty good life. And there's no real vision for a better way. So they're kind of satisfied, acquiescing to the situation. I'm getting along okay. I don't need a savior, but this is as good as it gets. And the problem with that is there's no vision of the adventure that God is offering. That this walk with the Lord is, it's amazing. It's transformative in the best way. It's full of excitement. It's full of things you don't expect. So um, a couple weeks ago, maybe three, 
someone was visiting for the first time, had never been here in worship, and they were sitting over in the transept and looked out and could see over all of your heads halos of light and asked the friend that brought them to the service, said, is that normal? And he said, well, I don't know that everybody sees that, but people continually are seeing things in worship, angels, light, different things. And what is happening is they're not accepting the status quo. Their eyes are being opened to a spiritual reality that this is not about flesh and blood. This whole thing is about principalities and powers, it says in Ephesians 6. There's a real spiritual realm, and from time to time it manifests itself. God, who is this coming king, is pulling, left and right, he's pulling things under his dominion and his reign. He's inviting people in. And to those that are open to it, he's exposing them to his kingdom. They're seeing things. They're experiencing things. It's not just status quo. There's more. There's a lot more that he wants for us. Don't be self-satisfied. Expect more from the Savior because he's got more for you. There's a third category of people, not just the spiritually proud, not just the complacent, but there are those who actually think they're on the right path. It's not an arrogance, it's more of an ignorance. They're on a path, they think it's the right one, and they don't know that they're lost. I think of the church in Laodicea. There's another good name for you, Bruce. In Laodicea, it's in Revelation, um, the again, red letters in my Bible, Jesus is speaking to specific churches. And the church in Laodicea, which would be in modern-day Turkey, was one of these churches. And he had some commendations and some, uh, some accolades for these churches, but he also had some hard things to say to them. And to that church, he said this. He said, you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Gosh, that's poetic, and it's really a rough word to hear. You think you're rich and don't need anything, and yet you're wretched. Your state is wretched. You're pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You're going on a path, and you don't even realize. You don't, you don't realize how lost you are. So John, the Baptist, shows up, and he quotes Isaiah 40, and he says, this, he's coming. The, the prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. He invites people to prepare. And the, the passage says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, I went, I checked the grammar on this because I went in Isaiah 40 and looked at it back there and I looked at it in the Greek. I looked at the Greek and the Hebrew to see if this is grammatically like I think it is. It's, there's no comma. It's not clear how to, how to say it. A voice of one in the wilderness crying, prepare the way of the Lord, or a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare a way of the Lord. Which is it? Was John in the wilderness saying prepare the way? Or is John saying, your life is a wilderness, and in that wilderness, prepare the way? Both are true, actually. I think both are true. He was literally out in the wilderness. He was out like somewhere along the Jordan River in different places. He was not in a city, but he was saying, in the wilderness that is your life, make straight the path. Prepare the way of the Lord. So what in your life is causing the path to be curved? What in your life is a valley or a dip that the king's chariot would have trouble going through? What is a hill that he'd have to go over? What are these obstacles? Salvation is inviting you. This call to salvation is inviting you to make straight the path, to welcome the Lord. There's a, there's a human component to salvation and a divine component. What I like also about this text from Isaiah here is that it tells you, prepare the way of the Lord. But then it puts the other verbs in a passive tense. So every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. By whom? Is it your work or is it the Lord's work? 
Again, the answer is yes. It's intentionally vague because you have work to do, but the Lord is coming and he's going to do a work. That's part of this process of salvation. He's consistent. He's coming. And he expects us to participate with that work. We can resist him. And he sends John the Baptist ahead of the way to say, stop resisting. Prepare the way. Your king is coming. Let him come and save you. I have, a, I have a childhood friend whose dad came to visit me a number of years ago here in Florida, and he's an engineer and um, thinks like an engineer, so I appreciate that, but he knows what I do as a pastor, and, and he's also a believer, and with kind of a, you know, a twinkle in his eye and kind of a, he's, he's got a kind of a cackle of a laugh, he said, so you've been busy saving souls lately? And then he, and he laughed, and I wasn't quite sure how to answer that, because on the one hand, yeah, I have been busy saving souls, but on the other hand, I'm not the Savior. The Lord is the Savior, but what he does is his message goes forth, and then people's lives get transformed. And we're going to look at transformation next week. But there's a human component, and there's a divine component. This text that is borrowed here by John the Baptist is an interesting part in Isaiah's work. It's from Isaiah chapter 40, which is, some, some scholars call it the prologue to Isaiah 2, as if there's like 1 and 2 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Isaiah because it really changes from chapter 39 to 40. All of a sudden, instead of talking about this exile into, the, into Babylon that the judgment upon Israel is going to cause, it says, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to them. Tell them I'm coming. I'm, they're going to see my glory. And it starts to speak of restoration and this positive side of salvation. They assumed, because they were exiled into Babylon for so long, that God had utterly forgotten them. Not only had he judged them, but they assumed also that he'd then abandoned them. And he says to Isaiah, no, tell them, I've not forgotten about them. I'm I'm with them. I mean, the name Emmanuel is God with us. Oh, come God with us. He's transcendent, but he's present here. And so the word was, I'm with them and I'm going to restore them. So it's not surprising John picks that up because there had not been a prophetic voice at all in Israel for 460 years from the last Old Testament prophet until John the Baptist shows up on the scene. They were starting to wonder, maybe God has abandoned us again. He's gone utterly silent for four and a half centuries. And then this John the Baptist person shows up. And all of a sudden, there's this new expectation that pops up. What a timely word for us, 2,000 years into it. Come, Lord Jesus, when are you coming back? It's been 2,000 years. And it could be today, it could be 2,000 more. And so this word is very helpful to us. He's, he's not abandoned us. He's with us. He's coming. He's coming one day literally, but he's coming, well, it's literal as well, but it's spiritual, not physical. But Jesus is coming to us even today. So at one point he says, after um, being resurrected, he says to his followers, you see and believe, blessed are those who believe even though they've not seen. So Jesus has come and brings the gift of salvation and this new life to us. How am I preparing myself for his, his coming? And I mean now, not just when he returns in great glory. Well, here's a very simple thing. If you, if you remember nothing else that I say, I want you to remember this. Relationship makes you ready. Relationship makes you ready. Develop a relationship with the living God now and you will have no problems whenever he returns. Ignore him, and the relationship will be distant, and it's going to be a hard moment when you get to be face-to-face with your maker. Work on the relationship right now. Now, how do you do that? Well, um, 
You fill in those valleys. You lower those hills. Any obstacle to the relationship, you, you work at it. If you're dating somebody or married to somebody or a friend with somebody, you can't just let weeks and months and you know, time go by. The relationship goes distant. You have to invest in these things. So you have a date night or you constantly call your friend every couple days or every week or whatever it is. You have to invest in relationships, and it's no different with God. He wants you to invest in his relationship. And the way we do that is through the classic disciplines. We pray. We read his word. We worship like you're doing right now with God's people. I heard a sermon a number of years ago that alliterated very well. It stayed with me. Eruption, erosion, and excavation, which was talking about drilling down to groundwater to get a well. But I think it's appropriate for making the pathway of the Lord into your life straight as well. So sometimes a, a valley can be filled when there's a sudden eruption underneath and it just blows up, you know, like an earthquake kind of thing. It can level ground. It can make new holes. It can do all sorts of stuff. God sometimes breaks into your life with a sudden eruption and it, it has a straightening out effect of the pathway for your relationship. The other way though is just slow, steady erosion. Years of just wind blowing over your life. It can round off a mountain. It can fill in a valley. But the Lord would like you to excavate. It's not just eruption and erosion, but excavation. That's where you put something in, the human part of this. You cooperate with the process of being saved. I'm not talking about your eternal status. I'm talking about participating with the restoration of as far as the curse is found. All parts of your life, those dark parts in your heart, everything, anything that's not under the Lord's reign, you bring it to him. Now, there are tools, and our church put together an Advent guide. It's a little devotional thing. I hope you'll grab one. There's still some on the table back there. It's week two, but it's not too late. Get two, two more Sundays. You can start now. It'll help you put in place a, a simple pattern of morning or evening prayer, of coming to the Lord and inviting him into that relationship. Salvation is here already. The king comes, and it's a relationship that makes you ready. So let's pursue that, and let's pray to begin. Lord Jesus, I thank you that this is an incredible adventure that you've invited us into. I thank you for your first advent, and I look with expectation to the second one. I do pray that word Maranatha, come, come Lord Jesus. We invite you to come. Both come literally in your physical body and glory, and come by your spirit. Break into our lives. Give us the courage to pursue you. For I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.